Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanate. Hi, this is Mike Passanate, and welcome back to the award-winning Hospital Finance Podcast. The rules and practice of telehealth have changed rapidly in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. To explain what has changed and what may come next, I'm joined by Thomas T.J. Ferrante. T.J. is a senior counsel and a board-certified healthcare lawyer with Foley and Lardner LLP and member of the firm's national telemedicine and digital health industry team. T.J., welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me. So why don't you get us started, T.J.? Tell us what's changed around telehealth uh, in, in, in the past month. Uh, Sure. So the the short answer is pretty much everything, Um, but we'll dive into some of those details. Um, And and it's also changing, Mike, almost by the hour. So a lot of what even we talk about today or or when this um, is is aired or released could could certainly change. So it's important for anyone listening to to keep updated um, and, and keep looking because this is all very fluid for now. But some of the highlights and the main things that have changed that were, were big showstoppers before, first and foremost, came out of CMS and the Medicare program. So historically, um, the Medicare fee-for-service um, paid for telehealth services, but it was very, very limited. You, you sort of needed a perfect storm of criteria to be able to receive payment, and it was often touted or pointed to, to um, to say, look, this is one of the reasons that telehealth really hasn't taken off as much as it could have in the industry because of the, the slow movement to expand uh, the criteria for coverage by the government. And a lot of people would blame CMS for this, but it, it really wasn't completely CMS's fault. A lot of it was um, because these restrictions are um, located in the statute. And the statutes can't be changed by CMS unilaterally. It requires an act of Congress. And historically, um, you know, the legislature hasn't been as um, had the appetite to really take on that type of change. Now, given the public health emergency that was announced earlier in March, that changed the game for a lot of those coverage requirements. What was passed was a public health law that actually amended those requirements for a period of time, those statutory requirements. And and those requirements historically were, the the big ones were that a patient had to be located to receive telehealth services and and receive payment. Um, The patient had to be located in a uh, qualifying rural area. So that was basically outside of a metropolitan statistical area or in a health professional shortage area. So somewhere like Manhattan obviously wouldn't count. It's your typical rural communities. And the patient also had to be in a qualifying originating site. And that is typically was like a doctor's office or a hospital or a nursing home. Definitely not the patient's home in most cases. That all went by the wayside with this new law change for the waiver. And as of right now, the patient can be located anywhere and would be eligible if it's a Medicare beneficiary for that provider to receive telehealth payment and at the same rate as if that person had come in for an in-person visit. And the policy reason for this is to really keep patients that um, out of the emergency room, out of the hospital system right now that is being stressed 
with the COVID-19 um, epidemic, with all the testing and the treatment for those people. And so the, part of the policy is to try to treat remotely at, you know, whenever possible. And this is one of the tools that CMS has used by waiving the historical law. So that's, a, that's probably one of the biggest ones, I would say, um, in, in the industry. I would say the other, the other there's two more big, big ones I would, I would highlight. The second one is um, less from the federal government, but more on a state-by-state -state basis. And that's with respect to uh, the licensure requirements for various healthcare professionals. So the, the historical rule has always been, and this is the rule in all states, that a doctor has to be licensed in the state where the patient is located at the time of a telehealth consult. So if you have a doctor that's um, um, licensed or located in Florida, but the patient is located in Massachusetts, uh, at the time of the telehealth consult, that doctor in Florida also has to have a Massachusetts medical license. What has happened is a lot of the states on a state-by-state -state basis have started to loosen or waive those licensure restrictions, which has really opened up the ability for providers to practice across state lines without the burdens of having to get in this, uh, you know, crisis time period, additional licensure, which wouldn't, you know, likely be able to be processed in such a short period of time. The tricky part about this is not all states have done it and not all states have done it in the same way. So you still have to very much look at each state and what their rules are, um, and, and those are changing, uh, you know, again, almost by the day. Um, but a lot of it is less restrictive than historically. So, for example, um, you know, Florida, where I sit physically, has passed um, a, uh, a waiver, an emergency order, which would allow a number of provider types to practice telehealth in our state from other states if they're licensed in other states. So a doctor in Texas can, can practice medicine in Florida via telehealth, see patients via telehealth, even though that Texas doctor doesn't have a Florida medical license. Again, the policy for this is to really streamline access to care. The, the last one, the last big change um, I would highlight is uh, came out of the de Department of Justice. So the Office of Inspector General, they're usually charged with criminal activity, um, words that folks in the healthcare industry that might be familiar with, such as the anti-kickback statute and false claims act, things where you'll see, you know, the fraudulent enforcement uh, take place in the headlines of the newspaper. They've come out and said, look, historically, we have um, not encouraged, and it's been prohibited and illegal, to waive copay requirements for Medicare beneficiaries or any federal healthcare program dollar program. And the reason, historically, the policy reason for that rule is you don't want to incentivize overutilization or give something of value, which would be the copay forgiveness, to a Medicare beneficiary to in induce them to come to your and receive your services versus someone else, whether or not it may or may not be medically necessary. Given now, the again, the landscape that we're in today, the OIG has said, look, we you know, those services for telehealth, for copayment, we want to encourage that, so we're going we're gonna to go ahead and allow the, uh, we're going to use our enforcement discretion and say, um, you know, providers, you don't have to worry about it. We're, you're not going to get in trouble if that typical $20 copay that was required or whatever it was, um, you know, you don't, you don't collect that. You don't ask the Medicare beneficiaries for that. Instead, you know, you don't have to charge a copay and the services can be provided for free to the Medicare beneficiary under that coverage. So those are the big three ones, in my opinion. That's great summary, TJ. 
uh, and cer- certainly a lot of changes in a very short period of time. Do you see anything else uh, on the near-term horizon changing? I know it's a very fluid situation. But I'm just curious as to what you think might might be in the offing. Yeah, I think the biggest thing we'll see is you're going to continue to see these emergency orders come out of states and modifications of them. So, you know, a number if you go on just to your local state's governor's website or Department of Health, there's probably several of them already. So it's not just even one emergency order. They're modifying them almost daily, certainly weekly. And uh, I think we'll continue to see, see the trend of um, tweaking the licensure requirements. I think that's a big one. Um, you know, the more leeway that exists for doctors, uh, you know, and, and healthcare providers of all types in other states to kind of cross state lines and provide healthcare service where, where it's needed, I think is important. If you look right now, you know, states like New York, Washington, they're the ones that have the highest number of cases. So, you know, that means those, those local healthcare, uh, you know, systems and hospitals are, are really feeling the most stress. So it makes sense, right, to have someone or, or providers located in a different state, you know, just to throw them out there, maybe Oklahoma, North Dakota, I don't know, that maybe have fewer cases and have more capacity for healthcare providers to assist to be able to use telehealth and help um, those states, New York and Washington, even maybe not necessarily the COVID-19 patients themselves because they need, need more acute treatment, but your other, you know, the folks and citizens that live in those localities that need general health care treatment uh, that may not rise to the level of acute care, but still need some tor- sort of care and can get that care uh, virtually and, and by doctors in another state that have that capacity and availability. So I think that's where you'll continue to see some, some movement is on a, on a state licensure basis. Let me dig into this a little bit more with you. Um, in terms of the organizations that can offer telehealth, you know, we think about our maybe our local hospital systems and things like that. But uh, you know, can an individual physician do it? Uh, we're hearing right now about physicians coming out of retirement. I mean, h- how do you how do you get involved in this? What do they need uh, to to get started? And and how, for instance, would you, as a, as a practitioner, let someone in another state know that your your services are available? Sure. So um, a couple things there. So going back to the state licensure waivers, a number of them have specific provisions allowing doctors to come out of retirement um, that may not have an active or full medical license. So I've seen a number of states that have that exception. So that that kind of that will encourage those folks to um, assist where necessary. As far as some of the other things that that if, if providers are looking to help, what they could do, um, the the short answer is yes. A, a doctor right now can provide um, assistance um, in most jurisdictions if, if they're willing to. Where it comes, where there, there's some additional things to think about is, you know, hospitals right now, they're certainly, you know, first and foremost, trying to deal with the influx of cases and, um, and deal with the, the COVID-19 patients. But at the same time, they've been forced in many, by many state governments um, or governors to no longer provide elective services which is a lot of the money making for these hospitals, right? A lot of the elective procedures is where the margin is for profitability. And so the hospitals are hurting right now. So they are still, uh, what's important to them is still receiving payment. And so if you're a doctor that is not enrolled in Medicare or is not currently active, that would be something that the hospitals would, would want and would be looking for those physicians to do. Fortunately, you know, CMS has answered that, 
that problem with um, an interesting solution. They have a, an actual CMS hotline. I think if you just Google CMS hotline for enrollment, Medicare enrollment, it, com it should come up. And it's literally a phone number where you can call um, as a provider, as an individual doctor, and answer a few questions and get temporary Medicare billing privileges for this period of time. And so it, that's, that's one of the solutions to that reimbursement problem to have all of these volunteer doctors come in that may or may not be enrolled in Medicare. This is one way to, to quickly allow those doctors to do so, which I think is, is helpful. The, only, the other thing to keep, to keep in mind, because I have a lot of questions I've, I've received on, on this, is companies that are, you know, maybe have been located in one state that have provided healthcare services that want to all of a sudden jump in and use telehealth. You know, that a lot of that is fine and I think it works. But one thing to think about is a number of states have what's known as a corporate practice of medicine prohibition or restriction. And about 26 states, I think, have that. And what that does is it prevents someone like myself, who's not a healthcare professional, from owning and operating and employing healthcare providers and providing healthcare services. So a lot of your big states like Texas, New York, California have these restrictions. And so someone that has just a general maybe healthcare company in one state, like Florida, we don't have one. So, you, so someone like me can own a healthcare company. And I might think it's okay to all of a sudden provide healthcare services in a state like California. I have not seen any state waive those corporate practice restrictions yet. So technically, you'd, you'd want to watch out for that because that's something to keep in mind. Um, it's probably not a huge enforcement um, priority right now, but it would still be something that you'd run, you could run into some legal issues if you're not following the law. And TJ, you mentioned reimbursement a couple times uh, already, and I, I want to get in get into that a little bit more with you here. So providers, um, obviously, you've got private payers, you've got the government. H how are they going to go about getting reimbursed, and, and what changes have occurred uh, around uh, any any sort of reimbursement provisions that they need to to be paying attention to? Yeah, so for um, I think the government is trying to bend over bas backwards to really loosen the restrictions to allow um, providers to be able to get that reimbursement that they want for these services that they're opening up. I don't think it's government's intent to, to really audit or prevent payment for these. We'll see how it shakes out once things calm down, but that's, that's my thought. Um, you know, not only is there that hotline for individual doctors, but for actual, let's say you're a physician office or an entity or some other type of provider uh, through an entity, you know, they've also um, streamlined that enrollment process to get you into the programs. So it, I think they're guaranteeing now that if you apply on the PICO system, which is their online application um, area, they're gonna guarantee you a response in I think about seven business days, which is much faster than, than normal. So it's also they're waiving application fees, things like that. So it's all in the spirit of trying to get folks into the program and then getting payment for it. I represent and work with a number of hospital institutions and, and other physician offices and groups, and, and they've started billing and have, have received payment for, for certain claims that have started pretty earlier on in the month. So I think that what we're seeing here is uh, an openness to get the payment out to the, the providers that need it to operate their health systems. Um, so I don't think it's going to be as much of a friction point. There are some nuances for, for hospitals or those, in, uh, I think it's Part A facilities mostly. You will have to put, there's a modifier on the bills if it's done through this, um, I think it's a CR, and it's for this public health emergency. Um, if you are in just a general healthcare physician uh, providing telehealth, there's no special modifier. Um, you typically put in as the place of service, place of service two. 
Um, and so there's nothing, you know, overly complex, I think, for those. Um, for, for commercial, it's a little bit of a different story. So, so there is no federal requirement for a commercial or private health plan to um, reimburse for a lot of this, or more, more specifically to waive cost sharing in particular. That's been the main issue. You've seen a number of, number of them come out and say, you know, we're gonna voluntarily waive cost sharing for testing for the, for the actual test of the COVID-19 um, symptoms, but um, some of it isn't always applicable to the actual treatment of the COVID-19 or generally other telehealth treatments. So that's really, you have to look at it on a health plan by health plan basis. So, to, for example, I think Aetna on their website right now is advertising that they have $0 copays for all telehealth visits until like early June. Um, I think Blue Cross, they have all about 36 independently operated, the Blue Cross Blue Shield entities, they've waived, I think, any cost sharing for telehealth services as well. So they've done that voluntarily. And so if you are a, um, an individual that's a member of a health plan, um, you also want to look at that if you're a provider and network, you want to look at that as well because it'll allow you to not worry about having to collect co-pays for those um, members that are in network. We've covered a lot of ground here, TJ. Are there any other legal hurdles or issues that providers should be aware of at this point, even, even though, you know, obviously there's a lot of waivers and fewer restrictions in place? Yeah, it's certainly probably one of the more relaxed times with respect to openness um, and loosening of regulatory hurdles to to really getting healthcare providers out there to provide the services that are that are needed. With that said, I think you know, as a lawyer, I wear always the wet blanket. I'm always looking at the risk exposure here, and some of the things that we don't really know how we're going to shake out are, um, you know, if someone gets hurt during this period of time and, you know, who's going to get blamed for it, there's always going to be potentially a, a plaintiff's attorney that's going to try to, to look for exposure areas for settlement, settlement, et cetera. It's just the nature of the litigious system we live in, right? So I, I make sure that if you are jumping into the telehealth world and you haven't previously, to make sure that you have the malpractice coverage that would ensure that it's going to protect you if you're practicing medicine uh, across state lines. And so that means that you would like to, call, you should probably call your broker, make sure that you can get a rider or that it's already included in your policy somehow. So there's something in writing that's allowing you to do that. You also want to make sure that your actual insurance company itself that is providing you with insurance is a licensed insurer in the states that you're going to be providing healthcare services. So that if you have, you know, a company that's in Florida, that that company also is able to provide insurance coverage to uh, operations that you would um, conduct virtually in other states like Oregon or wherever. I think that's a, a risk area that can easily be mitigated by that phone call to your broker, but it's something that can, can get lost in the shuffle or overlooked because people are eager to go help others. And, and what you don't want is something to happen where all of a sudden you're running bare in coverage and um, um, in an event that, that you would have some exposure. The, the other ones, um, two other points for that, I would say is on the, you know, every state still has their telehealth practice standards. So it's different from a licensure problem or issue. And every state has their own requirements about um, what type of technology you can use. Uh, so some states say that you have to do a video visit. You can't do like text messaging or phone only. Um, and then some states have started to change those rules a little bit. So Texas came out and changed their law 
so that you can actually just use a phone call. So you can literally, all you need is a phone call to a patient and that's enough to establish a doctor-patient relationship and, and treat those patients. So you want to look at each of the state rules there. A number of states require informed consent to receive telehealth services. And these are a lot of things that may not have been changed because of the, the, the COVID-19 pandemics. And so, uh, again, those are areas that um, should be looked at before jumping into the pool, I would say, um, in, in full-on helping uh, with a telehealth program. And then the last one, I think, is like, um, again, out of excitement, a lot of clients I'm seeing that maybe have never done telehealth. You know, they're going with some of these telehealth platform companies, and a lot of them are great, um, but they'll try to lock you in potentially to like a one-year contract. Oh, you're going to, not only are you going to do telehealth now, but you're going to probably do it in the long term anyway. Let's do our contract, you know, a two-year contract today. And that's fine, but just also make sure that you're thinking in the long term and that you're not locking yourself into an arrangement that doesn't make business sense for you after this, um, you know, the, the healthcare environment um, you know, rises up beyond the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And so don't just think of the here and now, but also think if, you know, those contracts are longer term, think more of from the business side, what it might look like after. Also, it may make sense to have sort of a pilot or period, a shorter term um, relationship with those vendors, um, given the situation. So maybe it's a six month contract, and then it opens up the discussions to, to renegotiate that for a longer term period. Um, those are the big things I want, uh, you know, I think people should keep in mind if they're, um, they're jumping into the, to the digital health space for the first time. Great thoughts, TJ. If uh, someone wanted to get in touch with you or find out more about what you do, where can they go? Sure. Um, first, I'll give a, we do a, 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 at my firm, Foley and Lardner, we have a healthcare blog. It's called healthcarelawtoday.com. And so we write um, all the time about digital health issues and other various healthcare um, um, you know, scenarios. And so I, I would encourage anyone to look there. There's a lot of great content. It's free. Uh, we try to really um, not hide the ball and, and give useful information for, for the readers. And if anyone wants to contact me directly, you can uh, look me up at foley.com uh, under my last name is Ferrante, F-E-R-R-A-N-T-E. And you can always email me at tferrante at foley.com directly. Um, and my email is listed on my, my firm bio as well. And happy to talk shop with anyone that that has any questions. TJ Ferrante, thanks so much for joining us on the Hospital Finance Podcast today. Great. Thank you, Mike. COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. Symptoms of this respiratory disease may include fever, cough, and shortness of breath. These symptoms may show up 2 to 14 days after exposure. If you are experiencing these symptoms and have come into contact or are in an area with an ongoing outbreak, please call a hotline and or consult with a physician. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces. For more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you. This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.